invite the rest of you to open your copy of God's holy word to the book of Haggai. We'll be in chapter two this morning. And if you're using one of the Bibles we provided for you there, it's page 791, 791 of those Bibles that we provided for you. And I I hope that as we've uh, sung together that uh, your affections for God have already been elevated because you've been exposed to truth, right? That's what truth does. It, 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 It informs our mind, and that should hit our heart when we say, yes, these things are true, and, and, and they're so true that I want to give my life to them. Uh, our aim at Redemption Hill is to be a church centered on the Word, so we don't choose these songs in a kind of flippant manner. Oh, we heard that last week. That's nice. Let's sing that. No, it's like these songs communicate truth about God, and that's why we want to sing them to encourage us and inform our lives. And that's why we open God's word, because God has spoken to us in his word. So we'll be in Haggai chapter two this morning. And uh, as we dive into this chapter, I want you just to imagine a scene with me, if you will, okay? A scene that would be you rolling into your workplace this week. All right, so I don't know if that's tonight for you, I don't know if that's tomorrow morning or tomorrow evening, but just picture yourself rolling into work, and I don't know if this is true of you every day, but tomorrow, tonight, whenever, this next time, you have just an unbelievably awesome attitude, all right? You're going to work, to work hard, to put your best foot forward, to serve others. You understand, if you're a Christian, that all of our lives matter to God, even our work. And so work gives us an opportunity to serve the common good. Those around us, it gives us an opportunity to glorify God in our work. Our work gives us an opportunity to take the raw materials that God has made and turn them into something beautiful for those around us. That's a good theology of work. And even if even if maybe you're not yet a Christian here today, even common grace teaches us that we should put our best foot forward in our work. We should do our best. And so just picture that this is your attitude, right? I know it will be, huh? Tomorrow, next day, going in, awesome. And, and so you're there, and, and you're ready to give, give your all, and you are in for a rude awakening because your supervisor calls a meeting, and he says, I have one simple message for all of you, and this is not up for debate, but we have a new mission as an organization business. You fill in the blank, uh, and our mission is this. In all that we do, our aim, our primary objective is to seek mediocrity in everything we do. Now, now listen, I know some of you shaking your head like that would never happen in my workplace. Perhaps it never would. I hope it doesn't. But, but at this point, if this were to happen, you probably have one of maybe three options, okay? Some of you might temporarily be sinfully excited about such a statement. You know, boss isn't breathing down your neck anymore. You can kind of hit chill mode, kick your feet up, relax a little bit. Um, and so maybe you would enjoy that at least for a short season. But, but hopefully, uh, because you have this awesome attitude about your work, you, you may go one of two other routes. You may say, you know what, I'm going to stick it out. I'm going to be a change agent. I'm going to try to keep going and pursue excellence in my job, even though 
uh, my supervisor is saying this is a place of mediocrity. Or, of course, the third option is you turn, you turn in your two weeks' notice and you go and find another better job that is not going to be the pursuit of mediocrity, but the pursuit of something good, noble, and true. And so as you, as you think about this scene, I think all of us at our core would not want to be a part of a workplace or a family or a church that is pursuing mediocrity. And why is that? It's because I believe God has designed us. He has wired us to want to pursue that which is great, that which has lasting value and significance. And so to put it in biblical terms, God has given us an insatiable desire for glory. Glory is that which holds value. It holds worth and lasting worth. And we all want that. And whatever endeavor under the sun we're chasing after, we want that which is going to be glorious, that which is going to last and is going to satisfy. And so if God has caused us to be hungry for glory, to be glory chasers, if you will, then then I want us to think about this morning this idea of seeking glory. Glory is a theme that is woven throughout these nine verses. And before we dive in, I just want to take you back. If you missed last week or weren't able to catch the sermon online, you know that in the first chapter, the the Israelites had returned from being in exile. They were in captivity in Babylon for roughly 70 years, and they made their way back to Jerusalem, and they began to rebuild the city. But there was one major problem. Rather than primarily seeking the glory of God, what were they doing? They were seeking what? Their own glory, right? Self-glory. Hey, God, we're not going to be concerned about rebuilding this temple that is, you know, a symbol of your presence with us in the central place of worship, but we're going to rebuild our own houses, and we're going to make sure they're kind of nice. They're going to have paneled, you know, out exteriors, and we're going to seek our own comfort and satisfaction rather than prioritizing the worship of you, which is why we're calling this series God First. So that is what is happening in chapter one, but then Haggai comes and he he stirs them to action. He calls them to consider their ways. You remember this, right? Think about how you're living your life, what you're prioritizing, and get to work, basically. That was the message of chapter one. And very encouragingly, we see that they got to work. And so now, what what is it that we see in chapter two? here's, Here's just the main point for you to take away today, right? Simply this. God designed us to long for and seek after his glory. Simple as that. God designed us to long for and to seek after his glory. And as we work through these nine verses, I'm going to provide you three encouragements out of this text that will hopefully help us to to seek after this lasting and satisfying glory that comes from God, okay? Number one, we should be aware of our inner ache for glory, okay? Be aware of of our inner ache for glory. Look at verses uh, one through three of Haggai chapter two. It says this, in the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shetil, governor of Judah, 
and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? So, so to catch you up to speed, the 21st day of the seventh month, uh, Haggai gives the second important message to the people. Okay, According to our dating system, this would have been October 17th, 520 BC, uh, roughly less than a month of when they began their work on rebuilding the temple. And his message is, is simply this. He asks a question. He says, hey, who among you saw the, the, the former temple, Solomon's temple, in all of its glory? And so they began to immediately think back, and Solomon's temple was spectacular. It was a sight to behold. And what we discover is, is that as they were beginning to lay the foundation for this new temple, the temple that they were rebuilding in Jerusalem, it was clearly not going to measure up. And so this is why Haggai goes on, and he says, you know, hey, how, how do you see it now? Is this, is not this foundation that we're, that we're uh, building, is it not as nothing in your eyes? I mean, the people are discouraged. They're looking around them, and if, and if this task wasn't great enough, I mean, we just don't pop up like skyscrapers overnight, right? It takes some work. It takes some resolve. It takes some planning. Okay, just go downtown. They're building a, a nice uh, skyscraper in downtown crossing area in Boston. I mean, these things don't happen overnight. It takes work. Can you imagine what it was like in the 5th, 6th uh, century BC, what kind of job it was? And then on top of that, this is a people that is experiencing drought. I mean, things aren't, things aren't going really great for the Israelites. It's not like they had uh, all of the, the resources at their disposal. The kingdom wasn't on you know, high at this point. They were on low. And so they were discouraged. They were despairing. Ezra 3 provides the immediate background for this text. And I love this one. One of my favorite passages. I probably say it all the time. I have like 200 favorite passages in the Bible. But, but, but look, at, look at this, all right? Bear with me. This is so good, all right? It says this. Now, in the second year, after they're coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, okay, this is what we're in, Haggai 2, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shetil, and Jeshua, or Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, made a beginning, all right? So now we're through chapter one. They've started the work of Haggai. Look at this. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord, according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsibly, uh, praising and th giving thanks to the Lord, saying, singing, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Okay, this is an amazing scene, right? 
There's shouting. There's excitement. There's singing. There's trumpets. There's symbol. People are excited because they were fulfilling what God had assigned them to do, and they knew that the temple was central to their, their, their existence as a people and central to their worship. There was every reason to be excited. But the text doesn't stop there. Verse 12 says this, but many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy so that people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. Can you picture this? Do you see what's going on here? In the midst of the celebration that the temple is being rebuilt. You have the young people. They're excited. They want the glory of God to be known and manifested in Jerusalem. And so they're so excited that the temple is being rebuilt. And can you imagine maybe a child walking the streets of Jerusalem and, and they see their parents and their parents' friends shouting for joy, singing praise, and they think this is one of the greatest days of their life until they continue walking down the street and they see these old men sobbing with tears running down their face. Because these old men, these these who had seen the former glory of the temple, know that this is not what they had seen before. And neither was it what they had expected. You see, when they were in exile, the prophet Ezekiel, he said, look, there's going to be a new temple, and it's coming. It's going to be so beautiful and so great that the, that the, the, the glory of the next temple will surpass the glory of the former temple. And so these old people, they're looking at this, and they're saying, this doesn't measure up. It doesn't measure up to our past experience, nor does it measure up to our future expectation." And so in this moment, if we would have been, been there, I mean, can you imagine? You could not distinguish the shouts of joy and the, and the tears of, of joy from the shouts of, of, of weeping and the tears of sorrow. An amazing scene indeed. They longed for something better. They longed for something glorious. And what they were observing there in Jerusalem and the foundation of the temple being laid was something that they uh, did not see as ultimately satisfying. They were, they were, we could say, glory bankrupt. That's how they felt. They, they, they felt as though they were lacking something. And, and, and this is how we feel sometimes as well, right? Because we long for glory, because God has made us in such a way that we long for that which is lasting and satisfying. So whether it's in your workplace, you long for progress and, and perhaps even perfection in your work, though we know we'll never measure up when, in our brokenness and fallenness. We long to 
to, to see people healed. I mean, why is it that when, when someone around us, or perhaps our, ourselves, we, we, we're not okay with physical suffering? It's because we long for something better. We long for God's original design. Genesis 1, 2, and 3, in the garden, there was, there was perfect harmony. There was shalom. It, 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 refer, it refers to human flourishing and life as God intended in the beginning. And we still long for that. We still want to get back to that day. And so the, the experience around us of the world that we live in, and it falls short of the glory of God. And, and we know that, that, that we ourselves as we look in the mirror of our lives and as we measure our lives up against what we even want for ourselves, much less what God wants from us, we know that we fall short of glory every single day, every single week, every single month. And so what are we to do with this, this, uh, this, this reality? Well, hopefully we receive encouragement from God in his truth, because I love what Haggai's doing here, okay? He's not just like a preacher or a prophet. Isn't just supposed to get up and like speak the truth without understanding who he's communicating with. And so what he's doing in verse three is identifying with them in their dissatisfaction and brokenness. I mean, this is a good prophet here. He's, he's meeting them where they are, and then he's going to encourage them in verses four and five, and definitely even more in verses six through nine to say, hey, Hang on, hold on, persevere, be encouraged in the work that God has set before you. So let's read verses four and five of Haggai chapter two, and it says this. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord of hosts according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. So, so this message comes. And, and what does he say? This is a, yet now. It's a clear transition. He has a message for them in their disappointment and discouragement. And his simple message is, hey, uh, Zerubbabel, Joshua, all the people, everyone who hears my voice, be strong. Get, get, get back to work here. And how can he say that? It's, it's not just a command that is devoid of motivation, but it's a command that is fueled with motivation, namely the presence of God in their midst. For I am with you, declares the Lord. This is why we can have strength. This is why we can persevere in the work, because God is with us. What are we going to do in moments of challenge and discouragement? How are you going to respond when you are up against it? I mean, we, we tend to live in a culture that likes to sanitize everything, right? It'll be okay, little baby. Mama will take care of you. You know what I'm saying? This is kind of like we kind of want to coddle children. It's good. We need to do that. We need to comfort and coddle them. You know what? But sometimes what children need to hear and what adults need to hear is this. Be strong. Work. 
I mean, why, after the marathon bombings, did, did this, this, these simple two words, Boston strong, like why did that resonate with us as a city and even as a nation? It's because we understand that we are going to go through it, that we are going to face the resistance. It's coming in life. Trials and tribulations and troubles and difficulties are going to come. And so what do we do when we face these trials and adversity? We are to push forward with resolve. We are to be strong. We are to to continue on to work. And again, we can do this because God is with us. That's the encouragement. He doesn't leave us to ourselves. I mean, not only do we have the presence of, of God in this kind of general abstract way, but we have the presence of the Lord of hosts. What does that mean? Anybody know? We see it 14 times in 38 verses in the book of Haggai. You think, like, you don't have to be a biblical scholar. You don't have to be like Scott and Angel in seminary, you know, like studying their Hebrew. And they're like, you just read that 14 times in 38 verses, and you know that it means something. And what does it mean? The Lord of hosts was a reference to God being the leader of all the armies of heaven and earth. It was a statement that says, God is strong. God is powerful. God has all authority. And so it's this God, the Lord of hosts, that is with you, that will help you persevere in the work. This is what we need when we suffer. We need the knowledge that God is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress, right? He is our refuge. He is the one that we can go to. He is the one that is, that is by the way, not just simply dwelling in our midst today. If you are in Christ, this is really good news, okay? What did, what did Haggai say? God promised that his spirit would be in their midst. But now, Jesus says in John 14, verses 16 and 17, he says when he, he uh, left, after he was raised and ascended to the Father, he says this, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So if you are in Christ and you have experienced God's salvation through the the cross of Christ, then his spirit is with you, is in you forever. This should give us all the confidence we need. And so as we think about being encouraged by the present glory of God in our midst, you say, well, well, how does this reveal glory? Well, well, here, here you go, all right? And I love this truth about the glory of God. What is the glory of God? The glory of God is the manifestation of who he is. God making himself known is glorious. God revealing his character and his work as the strong, powerful, all-authoritative one. That is glorious. 
And so if you are discouraged today, and I said this last week, and I just want to say it every week, and if you get tired of me saying it, then like stop coming or talk to the members and see if they can get rid of me, okay? Because I just can't stop saying this. What we need in our discouragement is a clearer vision of God. That's what we need. Go shopping. Buy something. Eat some chocolate. Make yourself feel better. Talk it out. I mean, is, that, is that the best we have? We need a clear vision of, of God and his glory. That's when I, what's going to cause us to press on when we're discouraged, when we're up against it. And there is another phrase. I mean, Haggai too is like, man, wow. Um, He says in verse five, look back at verse five. He says, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. Now, why is this statement so important? I never knew why it was so important until I studied it this week, okay? But, But go back to verse one. In verse 1, it says what? It's the seventh month on the 21st day of that month. This is when Haggai is speaking this message. Well, what happened on the 21st day of the seventh month? Anyone know? It was the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths, okay? And so what that feast did, it was one of the greatest feasts and celebration in all of Israel's uh, year annual calendar. And, and so what that did was it reminded them of the journey that God took them on in the wilderness when they were coming out of slavery in Egypt, and he had them dwelling in tents on their way to the promised land. You tracking with me here? So, so, so now they're in Jerusalem And they're being reminded of, yes, this is the God who is faithful to his people, who keeps his covenant promises, who takes care of his people and goes with his people. And not only did he lead us into the promised land the first time, but now he has led us back again. And so this should have done two things for the Israelites there in Jerusalem. Number one, they should look around. They should be able to see, hey, no longer are we living in tents. In fact, our, our houses are pretty nice. We just built them ourselves, man. God is taking care of us. He is faithful to his promises. But more importantly than that, not only is it about material provision, that is nice, and yes, it's necessary, but what is more important is the spiritual presence of God in their midst. If God is willing to give us himself, what more do we need? Is there anything we need in addition to the presence and the strength and the love and the grace of God? I hope you're saying absolutely not. No, nothing. Nothing more do I need than than God himself. And so let me drive this home. Uh, please listen to the words of Jesus in John 7, verses 37 to 39, very carefully, okay? What does it say? On the last day of the feast, anyone want to take a guess what feast this was? 
Same feast, all right? Verse 2, the feast of booths, the feast of tabernacles, okay? On the great day, the great day when everyone would have been gathered probably in the city, probably more people there than were there on any other day, and they're, they're celebrating, they're praising God, and they're praying to God. Jesus stands up, and he cries out in a loud voice. And what does he say? He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, he said this about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So so we're all thirsty. I mean, I'm not going to ask you if you're thirsty. I'm just going to tell you we're all thirsty here today. And Jesus is God's provision for our thirst to be satisfied. We have to search no more to be satisfied holistically, spiritually, in everything that we have going on in our life because Jesus is the answer. And so if you have never said yes to Christ, like really followed him, really given your life to him and said, man, I'm going I'm I'm to call Jesus my Lord and live my life for him, then the greatest decision that you could ever make is to say, you know what? Yes, Jesus, you are eternally forever satisfying and I'm going to satisfy my thirst in you. And then for every person who does that, and if you do that today, if you say yes to Christ and drink of the living water that he provides, then then the beautiful part is this, is he doesn't just stop there and, and kind of satisfy us, but then he places his spirit within us and that we become this conduit of grace by which God in his grace uses us to be a blessing to others out of Our hearts will flow rivers of living water. What great news is this? If you are a discouraged Christian in any sense of the word discouraged, just know that God is here. He is in you. He walks with you. He never leaves you. He has given you everything you need for the work that he has placed before you. Number three. Not only should we be encouraged by the present glory of God in our midst and in us, but verses six through nine tell us that we should be intensely zealous to seek future glory and the shalom God will bring. Look at verses six through nine. This is what it says. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more. In a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake the nations, all nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares The Lord of hosts, this latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. So in these verses, what we have going on are promises of God to make good on everything that he has said, that he will fulfill every single one of his promises. 
And this did have immediate application in that day. They, they, they saw their physical needs met in rebuilding the temple. But as we said, as we, we saw with, with when they laid the foundation and even the end result, no one could ever conclude that the second temple that was rebuilt in Jerusalem and, and was destroyed after the crucifixion of Christ in 70 AD, no one could ever conclude that that temple exceeded the glory of the former temple, which tells us what? There is a temple that is to come that is far more glorious. And so it's in these words, I will shake the heavens, the earth, the sea, the dry land. I will shake all nations. This is a picture of the coming judgment of God when everyone will stand and give an account before him. And we need to be ready for that day. And the only way that we're ready is not because of the righteous things, the good things that we could ever do, but it's because of the righteousness of Christ and what he has done on our behalf. And so if you have an ounce of fear in your heart about that day when you stand before God, then perhaps you are not yet in Christ and you need to take a drink of the living water that he gives because he is our access to God and he is our righteousness before God. If you have questions, see somebody after the service because there's a lot more that we could say about that. But not only is this shaking a picture of the coming judgment, but it is loaded with illusions and pointing to the new heavens and the new earth that is to come. We see this in the, the, the second decisive actions that God says. He says, not only will I shake, but I will fill this place with glory and I will give peace. And so there is a temple that's coming. There is a dwelling place for God that is coming. And it will not be built with bricks and stone and mortar but it will be God himself dwelling in the midst of his people. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I saw, listen to this, no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb, Jesus, and the city, has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light, the nations will walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. So here is the, the culmination of Haggai's vision that he is placing before the people. There is a day that's coming, a greater day when the greater glory of God will be seen. When Jesus comes, not for the first time, but for the second time, and a new heavens and new earth is ushered in. And we will dwell forever in the presence of God. His glory will be all we need. His glory will shine so that we can live in his presence. And so this is God's doing. I love that, that it says he will, he will in that day bring peace. All right, the Hebrew word there is shalom. 
which refers to flourishing, okay? So, so picture this, this new heavens and new earth. It will be a place where, as the prophets would say, the lion lies down with the lamb. Pretty cool imagery there. You want peace in the world? It's coming. It will be a place where justice wins in every case. It will be a place where there is no more sin. It will be a place where God is perfectly glorified. Won't that be great? And oh, by the way, it will be a place where our joy will be maximized forever. And so as you're hearing these words, I hope there's only one response in your heart. is You're saying, I want to be in that place. I want to be there. I want to dwell in that place forever. And I'm telling you, the way that we can do that is through the work of Christ. And so if you have not experienced the peace of God that that he desires to give you, just listen to the words of Romans 5.1 that says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith in Jesus, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you are here today and you're saying, yes, Tanner, I'm on that. I've experienced peace with God through Christ. Then, then what's kind of like the, the next step for, for me? And I would simply say this, that the next step for us is to be intensely zealous for God's glory all the days of our lives. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 12 compares the experience of the people in the Old Testament at, at Mount Sinai uh, receiving the law of God, and he, and he contrasts that with the, the future glory that is coming in the new Jerusalem. And in Hebrews 12, 26 through 29, we have the only reference, by the way, to the book of Haggai. So listen up. What does it say? It says, at that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This is cosmic proportions, right? This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of the things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made. This, this earth that we live on, the heavens that we see, it is going to be removed. It is going to be taken away in order that, why? The things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Do you see what the writer of Hebrews is doing? He's calling Haggai to back, and he's saying there is coming a day when God will take decisive action on a cosmic scale, and he will bring in this new heavens and new earth. And our only response in light of that is to see how awesome and majestic and holy God is and offer our lives in reverent worship to him and all-filled worship of who he is. So if we as a people can have a, a vision of this glory and we can look at it, we can see that it's coming, then, then by all means, shouldn't that affect how we live our lives today? I was in seminary, and 
When you're in seminary and especially in doctoral studies, sometimes you have to stay up late at night. So I, I, was, I was, you know, typing a paper, I'm sure. And sometimes before I go to bed, maybe I read a, you know, a little bit of scripture. Or sometimes I read a couple pages of a book that, you know, I'm kind of working through. And I was reading this book by Thomas Watson. Okay, he's a pastor in the 17th century. This is what seminarians do, by the way. It's cool, cool practice. And, um, and, and, and this book, Heaven Taken by Storm, there was this five-word sentence that took me by storm. Where, where Watson is, is talking about the coming glory that will be revealed, and he says this. He says, glory renders us intensely zealous. You, you got that? Like, I hope you'll remember that. I hope you'll write that down. I hope you'll let those words inform the way you live your, your, your life. Like, when we, when we see the glory of God and the glory that is coming, then that should move us. That should render us. It should, it should motivate us then to live our lives with great intensity and zeal for the things of God. So as we bring our time to a close, let me ask you, how hot does the intensity of your zeal burn for God? Someone's just kind of checking out your life, just looking at your life, just going to work with you and hanging out on Friday night with you and Saturday morning. Like, are they seeing someone's life that is given to God in complete, reverent, and awe-filled worship? Because if we have this picture of Jesus... And if we have this picture of the kingdom, the unshakable kingdom that he is bringing for us, then we should be moved to live our lives in complete surrender to him with intense zeal for him and his kingdom. I want to pray that we would live this kind of way as a people, individual peoples, and as a church here in Medford so that other people can be brought into this zealous worship of the one true God. Let's pray together.